Good morning. Yeah. Pastor Douglas Wilson once said <clears throat> that the only way to hold the attention of middle schoolers during a sermon is to preach on one of two things, either assurance of salvation or sex. And he called me last month and he said, Pastor Cole, would you please run that same experiment with a primarily adult audience on Sunday morning to see if that is still true? Uh, no, he did not call me, but that is uh, nevertheless the, the topic this morning. We are, are going to, to talk about sex because the Bible talks about sex. And I think Pastor John, when I pitched this idea to him, he thought that it was going to be about human sexuality, like the differences between men and women, but he was wrong. It's about sex. And so when we were talking the other day about my sermon, which I didn't give him any you know, spoiler alerts for, he just looked at me and said, Cole, I'm a little bit nervous about what you're going to say. However, however, number one, this has been intentionally designed with young ears in mind. So this is a sermon about sex that is not crass. It is not crude. Uh, there are no intentional jokes or innuendos. Uh, the most uh, alerting word I'm going to be using is the word sex and perhaps the word pornography, but that is it. Uh, if you would like something that is a little more vulgar, I'm sure that the Mars Hill sermons on Song of Solomon are still on YouTube for you to view at your leisure. Uh, but that's not this sermon. And it's really, uh, I've been so impressed uh, the past two nights with our sermons from Pastor Caleb as well as from Pastor Jeff, and there's so many connections that are in this sermon that are going to be made back with those two sermons that I don't have time. I would love to take the time to summarize both of those sermons and then to talk about how I think this one is connected to them, but I will uh, have to pass on that and just as you're listening, you'll, you'll hear those connections. Uh, but we really, you know, we can't get away from a sermon on sex with the topic we have, save the world, build a family. How do you save the world? You build a family. How do you do that? Right? You, you eventually, you have, to, you have to get there at some point. And so how this is going to go this morning is we're going to spend uh, a little bit of time up front, a, a good amount of time actually, defining what sex is from Scripture. And then I think that if you pay careful enough attention, and I've done a good job in presenting as well as in preparing, we will be able to easily make that connection to what does it mean that sex is warfare. And so before we do that, let's go to the Lord together in prayer. Our Almighty God, we woke up this morning and we did not breathe in the pains of hell. We did not wake up with a burden of sin. We did not wake up enslaved to someone or something that hates us. God, we woke up this morning and we woke up to your grace because your mercies are new every morning. God, we thank you for uh, the health that we have in our bodies for the vehicles that got us here, for the money to fuel those vehicles that got us here, for a building uh, that, although we sometimes see its deficiencies, God, we're so grateful to have a building. We thank you so much for our friends who have driven great distances to be here and to fellowship with us, and that there are other churches in our state that have the same values that we do. And God, there is, there is no substitute in 
excellence in rhetoric to make up for the work that your Holy Spirit does when the sermon is preached. We are completely and utterly dependent on you and on your grace in order to receive your word. And so, God, I ask that uh, your Holy Spirit would be with me as I preach, that I would preach with precision and clarity and wisdom, and that it would be well received. In Jesus' name, amen. The reason that we are going to begin with the definition of what sex is is because I think that if we were in a classroom setting and you all had a pen and paper and I asked each of you to jot down a one-sentence-to-one-paragraph definition of sex, I think that if I were to then collect those papers, they would be major- the majority of those definitions would be biological, physiological, non-biblical definitions of sex that use non-biblical, biological, and physiological terms and categories. But as Christians, when we are asked to define any word, any concept, including sex, our default response should be to provide a robust biblical definition using terms and categories that are explicit in the scriptures. And unfortunately, this is not our default. I think unless we are doing strictly Christian theology, and even then I don't really believe that we do this well, but that's another sermon. Uh, When we're doing really strictly Christian theology, we think in biblical terms, but then when we look at everything else in the world, including sex, we default to a materialist worldview. And we don't even recognize it because uh, we were not born with a clean slate. While we're still in the womb, we are being indoctrinated and encultured by something. And for the majority of us, I don't think that something was a Christian worldview. I think it was a materialist worldview with maybe a little bit, hopefully, of a Christian uh, veneer. But that's about it. We oftentimes, uh, except for when we step out of thinking of the Bible, we think about the world very similarly to how our pagan neighbors think about the world, which is primarily through the lens of biology, physiology, and chemistry. Now, is that wrong? Is it wrong to think through things biologically, physiologically, etc.? No, not at all. It's essential that we do that. Right, God is the God of biology. He is the God of the sciences. He has made everything, including the sciences. And so it is of the utmost importance that we understand what sex is at a biological level, for instance. But that should be subordinate to our primary lens of understanding what sex is and what everything is through the lens of the Holy Scriptures. And so that is why we are going to start there today, and we're going to uh, look at defining sex in two parts. And they're going to feel, I think, a little disconnected, a little scattershot, but bear with me because I, I do believe we're able to bring it together. So first, sex is participation in God's mission for humanity. That is what sex is. It is participation in God's mission for humanity. Genesis Chapter 1 says that God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. What is the meaning of life? The meaning of life is to work as hard as you can and have as many children as possible. 
That's the meaning of life. Work as hard as you can, have as many children as possible. Uh, The Westminster Confession of Faith begins with the question, what is the chief end of man? And the response is that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now that answer is, is somewhat vague, and it's its vagueness that makes it so brilliant and comprehensive. But when we look at that and we say, what does it, what does it mean to glorify God? What does it mean to enjoy the invisible God? Well, in part, what it means is that we are participating in the mission that he has given us, submitting to that calling, which is to work as hard as we possibly can and to have as many children as we possibly can. And this makes sense when we get to Genesis 3 and see what is cursed. The ground that we work and childbearing, the womb and the ground, work and childbearing. Those are the things that are cursed because those are central to our identity as humans and what God has made us for. Proverbs chapter 25 verse 2 says that it is the glory of God to conceal a matter and the glory of kings to investigate a matter. You see, God is the creator and not just that, he is a personal creator. And so absolutely everything that he has made, which is absolutely everything, has his impression on it. We learn about who God is when we have technological advances, when we explore new places, and even as we go through our ordinary routines day after day, we are exploring more and more of who God is, and we can rightly understand those experiences when they are filtered through God's word. And so you're out there doing that, mining the depths of who God is, and then you get married. There we go. You get married, and then you are doing that with your spouse, and then you are having children. You're being fruitful, multiplying, and then you're doing that as a family, which is you're accomplishing, if you're a productive family, as Scripture commands, you are doing more of that than you would have done on your own. And it doesn't just stop there because then God gathers families into churches and you do that as churches. And over time, he gathers more and more people into churches. And over time, he gives greater and greater unity to churches. He collects churches into denominations and because we're optimistic about where things are going, he eventually gathers the whole church into one denomination, one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. And together as the human race, as the church, we mind the infinity of who God is through subduing the earth, taking dominion, and having as many children as we can. What this means, therefore, is that when you are procreating, when you're having sex for the sake of another child, you are not overpopulating the planet. It's not what you're doing. You are not creating another hungry mouth to feed, another consumer, assuming you're going to disciple that child once he or she is born. You are not giving into an evolutionary impulse because sex is not just biological. Sex is not just a bodily function. Sex is participation in God's mission for the human race. One of my favorite quotes uh, from C.S. Lewis is in his book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, and there's a a boy named Eustace who is from England and he's in this land called Narnia and he meets a star. And Eustace says to the star, in our world, a star is a huge ball of flaming chemicals. And the star replies to him, even in your world, my son, that is not what a star is. That is only what a star is made of. 
Because we want to know what sex is. Not how does it work, what are the parts, what does it accomplish, but what is it? What is it? And it is, God, it is participating in God's mission for humanity. Uh, even the materialist atheist cannot deny this. The materialist atheist has to uh, try to explain this away. And, and how they do that, for those of you who did not go to public school like I did, uh, is, is that they will say, well, you know, sex exists on this you know, infinite spectrum, and in this little sliver, you know, there's sex that procreates, and a long time ago, there were two groups of animals, and when one procreated, there was, it was very uh, pleasurable for them, and then this group over here would procreate, and it was not pleasurable for them, so naturally, these ones died off, and, and these ones expanded, and that's, you know, why sex is pleasurable today, and people keep having children, and that's, it's not, the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard, but when you walk it all the way back, that's where it is. Because you eventually have to say that nothing procreates with nothing, and out of that you get something. But of course, you know, when a, a materialist says nothing, uh, they don't mean what every normal person means when they say nothing. <clears throat> Excuse me. What they, what they mean is that by nothing is a, is a frothing, bubbling chaos of chemicals. Right, so it's not nothing procreating with nothing to get something. It's a frothing, bubbling chaos of chemicals procreating with another frothing, boiling chaos of chemicals, and that's what produces life. And so my only lame attempt at humor will be to say, and next time you drop a mento into a Diet Coke, be careful, because given enough time and chance, a frog could come out, or a monkey, or another person. Maybe we can just procreate that way. It's ridiculous, It is ridiculous because uh, the only rational explanation for why we are the way we are and why sex is what it is is given to us in Genesis 1. And any alternative has to be explained away with nonsense. That is what sex is. And before we get to the second part of what sex is, a couple of brief qualifications. Number one, just in a really quick parenthetical, you will encounter Christians who will tell you that the cultural mandate, as it's often called, to be fruitful and have dominion, that was given in Genesis 1, but then there's a fall in Genesis 3, and that eliminates that, um, yeah, that mission for humanity. And you know, two things to that. Number one is that those people are often very reluctant to say what our purpose is now that the cultural mandate is done away with. But number two, uh, this mandate is essentially repeated just about verbatim to Noah in Genesis chapter 9. And in Noah's living in a post-fall world. And so that argument does not hold weight. The second thing is that I think that when, um, if you are anything like me, you hear that our mission, our participation in God's mission for humanity is to work as hard as you can and have as many children as possible, there's something large or small inside of you that recoils at that. You say, oh, I don't really like that answer. But I'm here to tell you that little piece of you inside you that is recoiling is that really selfish, sinful part of you that wants to just stay single forever so you can spend all your money on yourself and drive really, really, really nice cars everywhere and sit on the beach and drink margarita most of the time. All right, that's the sinful part of you that recoils when you hear that. It's the part of you that Jesus said needs to go and die. This is why, and Pastor Jeff read from this last night, 1 John chapter 5, verse 3, for this is what the love of God is, to keep his commands, and his commands are not a burden. 
They're not a burden because everyone who has been born of God conquers the world. Oh, I don't work as hard as I can, have a lot of kids. That sounds, I don't, that sounds like a burden. It's not a burden. It's good. God's given you this good, selfless, difficult command. Sin is a burden. God doesn't give you burdens. He alleviates your burdens. What God does give you is good, difficult, selfless things to go out and do. And so that little piece of you that recoils when you hear that is just that piece of you that needs to die. So first, sex is participation in God's mission for humanity. Secondly, sex is the sacrament of the marriage covenant. Sex is the sacrament of the marriage covenant. And I'm going to go and and define what that is. And uh, I'll get to sacrament in a moment. But remember that sacrament is a, a good word. It's a non-biblical word. It was used in the first century, but you're not going to open up your Bible and find the word sacrament any more than you're going to open your Bible and find the word trinity. Um, But I'm also not thinking of the word sacrament in the the narrow, strict sense that it was used 500 years ago in the the debates of the Protestant Reformation. I'm I'm thinking of it more broadly that way. Uh, Because even when we hear that word covenant, we often think of the, the one covenant of grace we find in the scriptures, um, but there are, there are lots of covenants when we define covenant more broadly and, and still correctly. So what is a covenant? Now, I am the only um, professing Baptist at this entire conference, and it makes uh, Presbyterians very nervous when a Baptist tries to define covenant. I am professing Baptist. I don't know how credible that profession is, but I am professing Baptist, and I have, just so you know, Presbyterians, I have uh, ransacked your books to find this definition. So if you don't like it, take it up with your own people on your own time, all right? And don't bother me with it. Uh, And it's the most simplistic, condensed answer I could find as well, because this is, you know, this is not a sermon on covenants, strictly speaking. So a covenant, very simply, is a binding relationship with blessings and obligations. A covenant is a blessing, or excuse me, a covenant is a relation, ah, a covenant is a binding relationship with blessings and obligations. And so that's why marriage is a covenant. So take the, the traditional vows that really should be used at every wedding, and I'll put my wife's name in there as for our example. Uh, we get Married, you know, a man and woman gather together, and I say, in the name of God, I take you, Zeta, binding relationship, to be my wife and to hold from this day forward. There is the blessing, right? That's the blessing. Yep, that's it. To be my wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, blessing, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish until death parts us. There's the obligation, Binding relationship, blessings, obligations. That's what a covenant is. And so marriage is a covenant. There's lots of covenants. There's big ones like the covenant of grace in scriptures, marriage covenants that are of the utmost importance. And then we do have really informal covenants, you know, ones that are not as strong, such as, you know, your covenant with your employer or the covenant we'll look at in a moment in Genesis 31 with Jacob and Laban. Now, the word sacrament, again, I ransacked the Presbyterians to get this definition, so if you don't like it, take it up with them. Sacrament is a sign and seal of a covenant. A sacrament is a sign, thank you, Caleb, is a sign and seal of a covenant. So 
we're going to go back to Genesis chapter 31, and I'm going to read a few verses, and I want you to listen for the covenant, the binding relationship with blessings and obligations, and the sacraments that accompany it. Uh, because you, know, you, you speak a covenant into existence, you, you make an agreement, and what a sacrament does is that agreement, it exists out here, and a sacrament gives it feet in reality. That's what a sacrament does. And before we even get to Genesis 31, we practice sacraments all the time in this informal sense of uh, we come to an agreement and then we shake on it, right? That's sign and seal of a, a very informal covenant. And then if somebody breaks that, we say, hey, we sh- shook on it. We point back, there's the sign and seal of that informal covenant that we made. We shook hands. That's what a sacrament is like. So, for instance, in Genesis 31, Jacob and Laban, uh, Jacob is Laban's son-in-law, and uh, Jacob married uh, both of uh, Laban's daughters, and their relationship is just one of back and forth, deceiving one another, which climaxes in Jacob, running away from Laban, taking all of uh, Laban's daughters and all his grandchildren and a bunch of stuff, and Laban catches up to him. And in Genesis uh, chapter 31, beginning in verse 44, we read, Come now, this is Laban speaking, Come now, let's make a covenant, you and I. Let it be a witness between the two of us. So Jacob picked out a stone and set it up as a marker. Then Jacob said to his relatives, Gather stones. And they took stones and made a mound, and then they ate there by the mound. And then Laban said, This mound is a witness between you and me today. If you uh, may, the Lord watch between you and me when we are out of each other's sight. If you mistreat my daughters or take other wives, though no one is with us, understand that God is a witness between you and me. This mound is a witness and the marker is a witness that I will not pass beyond this mound to you and you will not pass beyond this mound and this marker to do me harm. I read that quickly, um, but we'll, we'll go back and look at it. So binding relationship between Laban and Jacob and Laban says, hey, I'm no longer, I know you don't like me, and I'm no longer going to be a, a helicopter father-in-law. You can depart from me. There's the blessing. But, he says, you can't take any other wives, and you can't mistreat my daughters. There's the obligation. Secondly, here's, here's the boundary mark. I will not cross over that boundary to do you harm, Jacob. Blessing. You can't cross over it to do me harm. There's the obligation. And then the sacrament, the sign and seal of that, if you, there's two of them actually. One you probably didn't pick up on because, again, I read through it quickly. The first one is they, what? They gather stones. And they make in time and space in history a physical pile of physical hard rocks. And Laban points at that and he says, that is the handshake. That's the sacrament. That is the witness between you and I, the sign and the seal of this agreement, of this covenant. And the second thing, I'm really tempted to go off on a large tangent on this, but they also, they eat a meal together. If we were to keep reading, they eat a meal together on a mountain, kind of like the Israelites did in the sacrificial system that they were given, kind of like we do today every single Sunday as we ought to do. Uh, but a, a sacrament does not by necessity need to be a meal. It just, it, it often is, and that, that's important, but I'll, I will move on from that. And so, uh, Covenants are binding relationships uh, between uh, two, two or more parties, and they accompany blessings and obligations. That's what a covenant is, and the sacraments are the signs and the seals of that covenant. They're the handshake. They're the signature on the dotted line. They're the pile of stones. They're the bread and the wine. They are the signs and seals of a covenant. 
So, when we say that sex is the sacrament of the marriage covenant, we are saying that is the sign and the seal of the agreement of the binding relationship between a husband and wife. And this is why, I'm going to take us back in church history a little bit, and what I'm about to say is the last thing I would ever encourage us to bring into the present today. But when Martin Luther took his wife, and this is not a weird thing that Martin Luther did, it's something that pagans in his culture did, as well as Roman Catholics and other Protestants, when he took his wife and consummated the marriage, there were witnesses to that consummation who had to sign off and say, yep, I saw that. And we think, you know, that's gross and weird, and everybody 500 years ago was a pervert. And I, I get that sentiment. I'm, I'm with you. I'm tracking. However, maybe, maybe they actually had a more biblical understanding of what sex is and how it is connected to the marriage covenant. Maybe they had a better understanding of how it is that sex is tied to marriage as a sacrament and what sex is from a biblical perspective. So although I don't think, obviously, we should practice that today, I do think that we need to have the same belief that got them to go there in understanding that sex is the sign and seal of a marriage between husband and wife. So that's what sex is. Again, sex is participation in God's mission for humanity. Sex is the sacrament of the marriage covenant. And so now we have to ask the question, with those definitions in mind, what does it mean that sex is warfare? Sex is at the center of our culture. Sex is publicly discussed by our celebrities, by our politicians, our news anchors, our psychologists, our professors. Sex is the object of our comedy, our debate, our entertainment, our legislature. Sex has infiltrated social media, advertising, classroom curriculum. The daily metaphors that we use to understand reality are oftentimes sexual or sexualized. Uh, I did, again, uh, I, I went to public school my whole life, and so I had the experience that every sixth grader does in public school where you can't go more than one hour in a social circle without sex being brought up. And I remember going to my church and asking one of my youth leaders at the time, why, why do sixth graders just talk about sex all the time? And the answer that I got was, well, we live in a hyper-sexualized culture that is obsessed with sex. That, that's, that's the case. And um, I, I still hear that today sometimes, or at least that sentiment. And I used to take that for granted. It's still not the worst explanation, but I don't think it's completely correct. Because sex is participation in God's mission for mankind. Do you think that our culture is obsessed with participating in God's mission for mankind? Sex is, it's connected to a marriage covenant, right? And so we rightly acknowledge that a same-sex marriage doesn't really exist. That's something that's made up. You can't have a same-sex marriage. But then if you connect sex very closely as a sacrament to marriage, you also have to come to the conclusion that there's a really real sense in which there's actually no such thing as same-sex sex. That doesn't even exist either. And our culture is not obsessed with a marriage covenant, 
That is the last thing that our culture obsesses over. There's a publication from Hillsdale College not that long ago. Uh, It was written by a gentleman, Christopher Rufo, an author. And in this, he quotes Susan Stryker. Uh, Susan Stryker is a male-to-female transgender who serves as a professor at the University of Arizona currently. Uh, In 2008, Susan Stryker uh, won the Kessler Award at City University in New York and went to give uh, us... I almost said sermon, uh, to give a a lecture uh, on uh, receiving this award. And this is how Susan described uh, his, her lecture, as a secular sermon that unabashedly advocates embracing a disruptive and refigurative gender, queer, transgender power as a spiritual resource for social and environmental transformation. It's a mouthful. And in that secular sermon, Susan said, quote, the transsexual body is a technological construction that represents war against the Western society. I am a transsexual and therefore I am a monster, and this monster is designed to channel its rage and revenge against the naturalized heterosexual order against traditional family values, and against the hegemonic oppression of nature itself. Is Susan Stryker obsessed with sex, or does Susan Stryker hate sex? Does a husband who beats his wife, is, would we say he's obsessed with his wife? Maybe, in some strange way, but a far more accurate definition is that a husband who beats his wife hates his wife. Susan is not obsessed with sex. Susan hates sex because Susan hates God because sex is not something that is neutral. We don't live in a culture that is obsessed with sex. We live in a culture that hates sex because sex is not neutral. They hate sex because they hate God. What two consenting adults do in the privacy of their own bedroom is no one else's business. That was a slogan used offensively by our pagan neighbors to bring a strange sexual immorality from the fringes of society into the center. And I believe if things continue to go the way that they are, that will be the same slogan that is used defensively by neutered Christians in order to try and keep sex legal as it is incrementally made politically incorrect and illegal. Because we see if in Christian nations uh, that things like sodomy are illegal and sex in marriage is celebrated, it would make sense that when a pagan culture comes to full fruition that sex would be illegal. We even see uh, a sense of this in Aldous Huxley's Brave New World where um, you can sleep with whoever you want, you just can't more than once. Everything that our culture in the past several decades has contributed in the name of sex, whether that is contraceptives or abortion or pornography, is antithetical to what the Scripture teaches about sex and how Scripture defines sex. Sex is not neutral. While it can be abused, its right use gives glory to God, and therefore a culture that hates God also hates sex. So, In a sentence, then, how is it that sex is warfare? 
Sex is warfare because the sensual and romantic life of a Christian husband and his Christian wife enrages the devil. And so it is by this effective means that we wage war against him. The sensual and romantic life of Christian husbands and wives enrages the devil. So it is by this effective means, by renewing our marriage covenants on a regular basis, by submitting to God's commission, submitting to God's commission for humanity, that we wage war against those who hate God. So I will begin to close with two points of application The first one is a direct quote from the Apostle Paul. There's nothing new under the sun, but there's a lot that needs repeating under the sun, and that is to flee sexual immorality. Flee sexual immorality. If you are a Christian who is ensnared in some kind of sexual sin, or because sexual sin tends to have this especially strong guilt attached to it, and you're not ensnared in sexual sin, but you are ensnared in the guilt of past sexual sin, your only goal in life right now is to get out of that. It is to confess to your spouse It's to come to an elder and receive the absolution of Jesus Christ in order to begin to fight that sin, that guilt. Because a servant of Jesus Christ who is ensnared in sexual sin and guilt is a worthless servant who belongs to the devil. Not necessarily in an eternal sense. We know that Christians can become ensnared in sexual sin and guilt. Otherwise, Paul would not warn against it. However, they are in a practical sense belong to the devil because you can't there's no neutral space you can't just sit out on the battle you're either for or against jesus that's what he says and if you're ensnared in sexual sin then you are fighting for the other team it doesn't matter if you have wine every week for communion it doesn't matter that you've got all your theology all the way lined up correctly it doesn't matter that you're singing the psalms none of that matters if you are ensnared in sexual sin and guilt you have to You must get out of it. The Bible supplies no oxygen whatsoever for a sexually immoral lifestyle. Secondly, this is going to be the best sermon application you have ever heard, so buckle up. Secondly, get drunk and lost in love. Get drunk and lost in love. The Bible, contrary to popular opinion, uh, does not prohibit drunkenness. The Bible does not prohibit drunkenness. It prohibits drunkenness concerning alcohol, but it not only encourages but commands intoxication when it comes to love. Song of Songs 5.1, eat friends, drink, and be drunk with love. There's a command for intoxication in that area of life. Secondly, we can go to Proverbs chapter 5, beginning in verse 15. Drink from your own cistern, water and flowing from your own well. Should your springs flow in the streets, streams in the public squares, they should be for you alone and not for you to share with strangers. Let your fountain be blessed and take pleasure in the wife of your youth. A loving deer and a graceful doe, her breasts will always satisfy you. Be lost in her love forever. Solomon says, be lost in her love forever. What does that mean? It means that you can't find a strip club or pornography on the internet or a younger woman because your sexual immorality GPS is broken beyond repair. You are lost in the love of your spouse. You are lost 
to sexual sin because you have been found by the imperfect spouse that God in his infinite wisdom has created and predestined for you, has hand-tailored to perfect you in Christ. You are dead to sin and alive to Jesus Christ. And I will close here with an objection that you will face. I think in particular younger people will especially face in our culture right now from 1 Peter uh, chapter 4. Hebrews, James, first, second Peter, yeah. First Peter chapter four, verses three, and, uh, three through four. For there has already been enough time spent doing what the Gentiles choose to do, carrying on an unrestrained behavior, evil desires, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and lawless idolatry. They are surprised that you don't join them in the same flood of wild living, and they slander you. You will be slandered not just for your sexual ethic, but for declaring that this is the right sexual ethic and it's the best one because it's the one that an all-knowing, perfect, holy God of love has given. You will be slandered by counselors and psychologists and by sex therapists who in the name of research and science and studies are going to tell you that monogamy in a marriage covenant is not the most satisfying expression of your sexuality, that you are missing out on who you could truly be and all the fun that you could really have, especially while you are young. And there are two responses that the Christian has for them. Number, the first one is the one I'm more inclined to, which is to simply assert that the pleasure of sex in Christian marriage is far more pleasurable than any deviant alternative. Let God be true and every man a liar. Let God be true and every ungodly scientist and sex therapist and all of their research and studies be a lie. You don't believe them about anything else that they would tell you, so why would you believe them about that? The second way that you can go, I'm less inclined, but I, I, I think there's room for it, is to say, you know what? In a sense, you're right. In a sense, in a very carnal level, there is more pleasure in sexual immorality than in the monogamy of a covenant marriage. And yet, and yet, I will with great joy, without any grumbling or complaining or regret, abstain for that for my entire life. Because I consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Because I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung so that I may gain Christ. Because it is better to gain Christ than to gain the whole world and to lose my soul. Because although I have not seen him, I love him. And though not seeing him now, I, we rejoice with an inexpressible and glorious joy. So you can keep the rest. That has to be the response that we give when we are inevitably slandered by the world around us for our sexual ethic. And I want to close, and I actually want to give one more, I want to give one qualification to our um, theme overall of our, our Bible conference uh, our Bible conference theme this year. Uh, that I think it goes without saying, but I, but I also think it's, it's helpful to point out as well. Um, you know, City Gate Church, we don't set any trends. 
We're not that cool. We're just trying to follow the trends that we think Jesus would have followed. So a conference on the family is not new. There's been bigger conferences about it in the past, lots of books written about it. I think as our country becomes more and more politically divided, uh, that there's just going to be more and really good stuff written about the, the natural family um, and conservative family values. And as that happens, we are going to find ourselves a lot of co-belligerents. For instance, uh, Jews, they love the family. They share more in common with us on traditional family values than, than not. Um, Muslims, arguably, uh, share many of our traditional family values. Mormons share our traditional family values. They also are trying to have dominion and as many children as possible. Uh, Roman Catholics share pretty much all of our family values. Your, uh, you know, friends that go to that really weak evangelical church down the road, they are maybe still conservative and they believe marriage is one man and one woman. There's a lot of people we're going to be able to find that agree with us. And when this project of paganism comes crumbling down and there's just a bunch of rubble everywhere, the Muslims are going to build a mosque. They're going to try to. The, the Jews are going to try and build a synagogue and probably another temple. The Mormons are going to try and build a ward. Roman Catholics are going to build their own thing. Our evangelical friends are going to try and build their own thing over here. All right, so all that to say is if we could rename this conference anything, we would say build a Christian family, save the world. Because it's not going to be conservative family values that we can all like link arms with everybody and sing kumbaya and get along because we know that marriage is between a man and a woman and that kids are good. That's not going to be enough to save the world. What is going to save the world is going to be robust Christian families that repent of their sin and acknowledge not only with their lips but with their entire lives that Jesus is Lord. Let's close together in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we know that apart from your power, apart from your Holy Spirit, that we are helpless to apply anything that we have heard today, anything that we will hear tomorrow when we renew covenant with you, that apart from you, we are simply completely helpless. And so God, I pray for um, anyone here who has heard this and is struggling with any kind of sexual sin. God, we know sin grows in the dark. Sin loves to remain covered. And we ask that they would uncover that and that the elders of their church would be able to graciously walk them through what repentance looks like. God, that we would not be a bunch of churches who are ensnared by secret sins or by sexual sin, but God, that we would break free from that. That we would imitate Joseph in fleeing from sexual sin. God, that when, when we sin, we would be quick to repent and keep very short accounts, not only with you, but with our spouses and with our church, with the people around us who we are in covenant with, with our children. God, we thank you for all of the good gifts you give us. We thank you for marriage. We thank you for sex. God, we pray that you would not, uh, that we would not grumble and complain about our spouses or about our children the way that Israel grumbled in the wilderness. God, we would remember, that we would remember, as Pastor Jeff said, that the commands you have for us are not a burden. They're hard and difficult, but you've given us new life, and so we can handle it by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.